This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Defense Department is refining its position on data in order to prime itself for the information technologies of the future. A memo signed by Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks puts in place new measures to make data and its management an integral part of the future of the military. Federal News Network Scott Massioni joins me with the latest. Scott, frame the scene for us, this memo. What are they thinking there at DOD? Well, this is really an attempt to make the Defense Department more data-centric, and they already did that with a data strategy last fall, and this really adds to that and fleshes out how that data strategy is going to work in more practical terms. Uh, what the Defense Department's realized is there's a lot of new technologies that need data. There's AI, there's machine learning, and then there's also a lot of business processes and current ways that they can better their business processes using data and using this software uh, to re- look at things from fuel to human capital to everything else in between that might be able to save money or make them more streamlined or you know really help out in, in many a myriad of different ways. And what does the memo specifically say? What does it try to get them to do? So at first, it creates uh, five data decrees, and these decrees state that DOD is going to maximize data sharing and rights for data use. So, you know, that that makes more open source kind of data available, which is very important for uh, uh, innovations and things like that. It's going to publish data assets in a federated catalog, so it's easy to kind of grab these things uh, using search searches and metadata, things like that. It's going to make data more usable for artificial intelligence and machines, like I said earlier. Uh, DoD is also going to store data in a safer manner, and it's going to uncouple it from hardware and software, so it has sort of its own repository. And it's going to implement best practices uh, for you know authentication, access management, and that sort of thing. It also creates a data council, and all the DoD components are going to coordinate their data activities. They're going to appoint data leaders to manage data throughout its life cycle. And it's also going to promote data literacy, uh, something that not everyone necessarily knows about. Um, you know, we're not always thinking about metadata and how to best create search terms and tags. And finally, one other thing to point out, it establishes the Advancing Analytics Program as DoD's single enterprise for data management. Uh, That's really important because it really helps this confederated uh, data system become one and make it easier for DoD to access all this data. And these data councils, who do they consist of? It sounds like this is something much more than just for the IT function at DoD. Right. You know, it would probably be chief data officers and things like that. The memo doesn't exactly specify who's going to be part of that. But, you know, I would assume it would be someone who is very, uh, you know, well-educated in data, you know, chief technology officer, chief data officer, someone like that. And does it spell out any new authorities? Because, you know, in DOD, to get something to happen, someone needs an authority usually. That's right. So DOD's already sort of broken away its uh, chief data officer from the CIO uh, area. And what this does is, is strengthen, strengthens that chief data officer position. The chief data officer is going to be responsible for issuing policy and guidance regarding data ecosystem, its sharing, its architecture, the lifestyle management, and the data-ready workforce. It's a, that's a lot. Uh, the CDO is also tasked with working with the joint staff and the Artificial Intelligence Center to make it easier for weapon systems and other components in DoD to talk to each other. So more interoperability. And then it also just asks for a bunch of reports that have been sort of waiting. And, uh, you know, th- these are things that are pretty important to DoD, but, you know, not necessarily that interesting. Now all they need is a cogent cloud contract to put all of this data and metadata and tagging in. The memo doesn't talk about that one, though, does it? 
It does not. All right. We're speaking with Federal News Network's Scott Massioni. And you're also reporting about something totally different, the military's Tenant Bill of Rights getting updated. This has been on the docket in some way for a couple of years now, ever since horrible conditions at military housing have been top of mind, at least for that part of DOD. What's the latest there? That's exactly right. So about a year ago, they implemented 14 pieces of this data Bill of Rights, and it gave some basic uh, rights to tenants to make sure that they were uh, able to get you know, safe housing, all that sort of thing. But there were four areas in this uh, Tenant Bill of Rights, there were supposed to be 18 that Congress had passed, that were missing, and they, they have just sort of been in the lurch for the past year. And the missing rights were really important ones. They were really the meat and, and potatoes of this Tenant Bill of Rights. It was access to maintenance history of the house. It was a process for dispute resolution uh, and a way to withhold rent until disputes are resolved from contractors getting the rent and also a standardized lease agreement so that uh, military families know what they're getting into. Uh, DOD has finally uh, finished their negotiations with the contractors. They say that this June, they're going to finalize everything and these uh, military families are going to have those rights that they've been afforded by Congress all along, but just haven't had possibly yet. So the Bill of Rights almost was the equivalent of rulemaking. Congress gives them the right to have this, but till they actually get it spelled out in detail in a way that the industry says it can live with, it didn't really happen. So now it's happening. Exactly. It's actually happening. It's something that Congress members and experts alike have been really pushing for and been wondering where this is, because like I said, it, it really is the teeth behind this, because without these uh, these tenets of the Tenant Bill of Rights, uh, you wouldn't be able to hold these contractors accountable for any of the other parts of the Bill of Rights. And how are things on the housing front in general? Are they improving from a physical standpoint, the mold and the rats and the rest of it? Well, there's no hasn't really been any definitive data about that, which is very frustrating for a lot of people. There's been some hearings and we've heard, you know, the Marine Corps, for example, has hired 114 additional installation personnel to, you know, talk between these uh, contractors and the uh, military families. But we haven't seen anything that says, you know, this is how many houses are better, how many people are feeling better. We've seen some uh, survey results have slight increases of, of better satisfaction with housing. But um, mostly at this point, it's been a lot of money and investment that they've thrown into this. We're just going to have to see how it goes over the, the next few years. And presumably within the confines of their own horrible rented homes, service members won't have to wear masks in addition to dealing with the rodents. Hopefully not. But what about the mask mandate in the military? That seems to have gone the way of the uh, C-47. Yeah. So last Friday, Kathleen Hicks again signed out a memo saying that if you are fully vaccinated, you don't need to uh, wear a mask in the Pentagon building and installations and things like that. Now, you're still you know, privy to the state laws and all those sorts of things when you go into stores and, and uh, alike. But when it comes to being in the Pentagon, if you're fully vaccinated and you're two weeks out from that vaccination period, you're good. And this obviously stems from the CDC's advice uh, from last week saying that, you know, fully vaccinated people really don't need to wear masks. So some exciting news for us that are uh, pretty tired of the, the pandemic. Federal News Network, Scott Massioni. Thanks so much. Thank you. Check out all of his stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration 
And he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be, uh, uh, to to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community, so it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt. Uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here, and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide 
in terms of race in America is. And but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of of them, of of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, Who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that that attribute, I think, is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic! And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give? to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a Secretary of Commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, 
just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.